This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Huntworth. Huntworth bringing you quality hunting clothing and packs at a price you deserve. Check them out at HuntworthGear.com. Huntworth is going to be down at the Mobile Hunters Expo. Uh, I'm going to be down there, uh, going down there with Latitude. I'll spend some time in the Huntworth booth, but um, you'll be able to uh, ask questions, check out their stuff. Um, If you're going to be there, you know, definitely stop by and check them out. Uh, For our Patreon giveaway for this quarter, they're giving away their Houlton jacket and pants, as well as a fleece line muff and hat. And I'm telling you, that's what those two pieces are what got me um, hooked on the Huntworth stuff. Uh, super warm, uh, Sherpa lined, great stuff at a really affordable price, high quality stuff um, at a great price. And the fact that they're giving those two away um, are, you know, right in line with what I would have told them that like, those are my favorite pieces so check them out they're going to be in that disruption uh digital camo pattern but uh yeah if you're going to be down there at the mobile hunters expo uh look for me i'll have some stickers and shirts and hats and stuff uh if anybody wants anything but uh, we're going to be down there um you know kind of meeting people uh, talking about the huntworth stuff um and uh going to be down there with latitude so all the latitude stuff will be set up as well so check us out got to give a shout out to uh our new newest patrons, Dakota Diable out of uh, West Lafayette, Indiana, and Tristan Mueller out of Spring Valley, Wisconsin. So those guys will be entered in for those Patreon giveaways. And if you're curious as to what that's all about, um, t- you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash bowhunterconics podcast or click the link on our website or uh, on Instagram in the bio. But we try and give back as much as we can. Patreon is crowdfunding for creators and basically it's like 17 cents a day sign up help us out help us be able to go to these road shows uh to the different shows to uh do things like our patreon hunt so we're doing a patreon hunt um just a public land deer camp 
in middle of nowhere, Michigan. Uh, but we've got guys coming from Washington, Rhode Island, um, Iowa, of all places, uh, just to come and share a deer camp and, and have some fun. Uh, really looking forward to that. Um, and if you guys, so for Dakota and Tristan, um, I'll get that information out to you um, if you guys want to swing by trying to make it happen uh it's going to be a good time but that's what you know patreon for us it helps us to do all these things covers the cost of the show covers time uh but it allows us uh to do these things um without coming out of pocket and uh it's just the greatest thing and we try and give back as much as we can so all of our partners like i said the huntworth stuff um they're giving away that latitude's giving away a set of their carbon sticks um spartan forge spartan forge is you know uh you know, it's artificial intelligence for the deer woods, but man, their imagery, their mapping is just incredible. Um, like for my house, it's been updated, uh, as recently as like a month ago. So like I can see my car, I can see my campers missing. Like I know exactly when that was, uh, just incredible, uh, their UAV imagery and now you're going to be able to use that offline with the latest update um just great stuff check them out at spartanforge.ai and uh, while you're there you can sign up using the code bowhunter you can save 25 percent on that they give away a year subscription uh for free uh to one of the patrons for our quarterly giveaway lucky buck i was just up in the up and the sites that we set back in january those stumps are you know, gnawed on, chewed, um, getting pictures on those still. Um, deer are still hitting them regularly. Uh, super impressed with that. They have seed as well. And uh, they're giving away, you know, either a bucket of their mineral, if you can use it in your area, or uh, one of their food plot seeds. Um, and then uh, also zingers. So the zinger fletchings, these are compression fit. You know, they're not fobs, they're compression compression fit they'll be down at the mobile hunters roadshow mobile hunters expo down there in ohio as well um check them out but they give away you just tell them what arrows you you've got and uh what color and they'll print them up for you 3d printed uh just awesome guys so um all that stuff is stuff that we give away we try and give back as much as we can to the patreons um but we also pull them for uh topics for the show uh last week's podcast um, on goal setting came directly from the Patreons. We have a Marco Polo group um, where guys can come in there um, and it's kind of like a digital deer camp, right? So they come in, you ask questions, you know, you bust each other's balls. Like it, it, it's a really kind of like a, you know, a hunting family. Um, you know, if you don't have that sort of support system around you, uh, like I say, for everybody that supports it, that's the lifeblood of the show. Um, patreon.com forward slash bowhunter chronicles podcast and we're doing everything we can to get as much uh back to the patrons as possible but if that's not your thing no big deal just tell somebody else about the show this is a great podcast with andrew from wild edge you know it's always uh interesting when we talk to guys who have products and andrew in this podcast is not product forward uh, we get into a lot of you know like old school deer hunting stuff and uh, kind of like the anti-industry uh, kind of like talk about the good people and the networking that can go on collaborations and things like that so like i said if patreon is not your thing no big deal tell somebody about the podcast 
you know, all the things you've heard about me, all the things you've heard about Andrew, uh, maybe this podcast debunks them and you say, Hey, these aren't, these aren't bad guys at all. Um, know you guys are going to, uh, enjoy it. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Bow Hunter Chronicles podcast. And I don't know, um, when I first started getting into saddle hunting and, you know, there was a few companies on the market and there was a name that just kept popping up, kept popping up. And then, you know, not too long after that, it was like, oh, this guy's kind of an asshole, you know, and, uh, you know, you know, kind of steer clear of them, industry, all this stuff surrounding him. And, um, so, so this has been a long time coming for, uh, this podcast and, uh, you know, it's a great conversation. I think we're going to have here, not just on the product side of it or industry side of it, but like kind of a, a background and his background into hunting. I think we can probably, uh, learn a little bit, um, from, from this guy. So, uh, we got Andrew Walter from uh, Wild Edge. So, <laughs> what do you think of the intro there, uh, Andrew? <laughs> I love it. That's perfect. <laughs> so, how are you doing today? How's things over there in Connecticut? Good. Just got back from a good fishing trip. Went out with my buddies. So, we uh, were at the boat at 3 this morning. Got a really nice keepers, two keepers and a really nice striper, a big 40-incher. So. Yeah, I guess good that's what you got to do with your day. But for me... You can keep the fishing out. Yeah. <laughs> find something else to do. So, like, what is your? You got a pretty interesting background when it comes to, like, I guess killing deer. Um, but your hunting background, where did that start? Like, when you first started out, like, what's what was your style of hunting, or how were you introduced to the sport? Uh, my dad was. Uh, I grew up. My dad was a bow hunter. Um, he didn't start till college. Um, so I was brought up bow hunting, but you know, he'd only bow hunt. He'd go to our cabin in Pennsylvania once a year. So started bringing me when I was about 10, but I was always in the woods. Um, and then obviously counting down the days until I was 12 years old and could legally hunt. And, uh, you know, I went from you know, growing up with my dad who was, he was into it, but not serious, uh, not a hardcore bow hunter. Um, so I took it to the next level, just instantly got obsessed. Um, killed my first deer when I was 13 with a bow. And then from there on, it was just pure addiction. Uh, so just lived in the woods, killed everything. You know, the rule growing up was you kill it, you eat it. So we ate a lot of squirrel, you know, rabbits, everything. So, you know, that progressed into, um, actually a career in, um, wildlife biology. So. Right out of college, I got a job working as a wildlife biologist or sharpshooter. So I traveled all around the country and the world, uh, doing suburban deer management, island conservation, eradication projects. So that was really cool. Um, so, you know, kind of spun that, went from that to, uh, I was doing that while I was in the army and then really got, I wanted to settle down, wanted to have a family on my little farm, on a dog, kids. So that I couldn't have that life with that career living in a hotel all around the world for eight months out of the year. So that's when I, I'd known Jim step, the inventor of the step ladder since I was 14. So I was talking to him about, you know, how I wanted to stay more close to home. And that's when he gave me the idea of bringing the step ladder back to life, you know, cause when he was selling them it was before the internet back in the early nineties. 
And it was, uh, you're selling like Kittery Trading Post, L.O. Bean, you know, any store you could get into. So I, you know, one day just shook his hand and kind of rolled with it. And here we are today. So when you started hunting, like, you're from learning from your dad, right? So what what was your, you know, now everything is saddle hunting, you know, super lightweight mobile setups. And before yep. that, it was climber it was you know the lone wolves and the you know the the lighter you know quote-unquote lighter at that time you know setups and and moving around um so like how did you start out what was your dad's style of hunting and then where did you take it it was funny it was always you know you go into the woods take your lock on your screw in steps find a tree there's always you know on a heavy trail set it up and that's where you hunted for the week you know you may you may move it a couple times during the week or throughout the season but you know it's pretty basic but i can remember you know dad setting a stand up sitting in it and then seeing deer like you know 50 60 100 yards off and i'd be like you know f this i'd get down from my stand take my boots off and i'd still hunt stalk deer and kill them but you know i killed more deer on the ground growing up than i did out of a tree Uh, so i got addicted to still hunting with the recurve compound gun, you know, any weapon I could get my hands on. Small game, large game. So I was I was pretty much always on the ground. Um, I couldn't sit still. You know, I'd sit in the tree for first light, maybe last half hour to an hour, and then I'd be on the ground. Whether it was raining or whether it was loud, you know, either way, I'm, I was still hunting. So that progressed into, you know, obviously learning a ton. I was pretty much on my own. Um, you know, by the age I was, by the time I was 15, 16, I was setting up stands for my dad, you know, dragging him into the woods. So then, you know, that progressed into my buddies and I getting into filming hunts. So, you know, we would have, you know, as many steps as Jim gave us, we had, we had screwing steps, we had sticks, ladders, branches, you name it. And then when we got into filming, we're trying to figure out how we could afford to have multiple tree stands in a tree you know, like a cheap $30 Walmart stands. And that's when I started looking at saddle hunting. My buddy had an old Anderson tree sling. So I borrowed that a couple of times and that turned into a bought an arborist saddle, turned that into a hunting saddle. And then from there on, I was like self-filming's the way to go, you know? So, or when I was filming another guy, I'd be able to up above them in the saddle or vice versa. So it, Turned into, you know, the still hunting on the ground, stock animals turned into the mobile hunting. But, you know, I still have at least 20, 30 presets in my hunting areas around here. But I may only sit those, you know, once, twice a year. I'm pretty much always mobile. So we've got a lot of guys. And one of the things, like, I have a goal to, like, kill a deer on the ground with a bow. And I've not done that. I've also not really put a lot of effort into it. You know what I mean? Like I always go out with my same setup. I don't, I don't go out and say, okay, I'm going to just hunt from the ground today. I mean, I've, I did that like maybe a handful of times last year and got close, but you know, it's one of those things where I think you have to commit to doing it. Like when I went from a sat, um, hunting with my lone wolf climber that I loved to stand in sticks. Like I sold the climber because I knew I would go back to it. Right. So like I, I had to fully commit and that's the way that I did it. So like, what are some of those things that you think guys 
make a mistake or like, what are some of the main things that you learned hunting on the ground to help you be successful in that way? Uh, biggest thing is I always, I get a lot of questions, guys, you know, how long does it take you to set up? You know, what's your time? What's your weight? How fast can you set up? Well, you know, they're all worried about time, weight, this, this, that. And my response is, you know, obviously it's situational, depending on the tree, the time of year, the terrain. But mainly it's, I'm not running to my tree to go hunting. I'm literally still hunting my way in, whether I'm going to climb a tree or not. Whether I'm scouting it as I hunt and may find a tree and be like, the sign's so good here, so hot, I got to jump up. Um, but it's, you know, it's mainly just, I'm hunting the entire way. From the second I step out of my truck, I'm hunting. I don't care if I'm walking down a main road, you know, I'm still paying attention. Um, so, and you learn so much more being on the ground, being eye level with deer, you know, and moving around. And obviously 90% of the time you're screwing up, but it's paying attention to the small detail, looking for, you know, looking for those horizontal angles. You know, you're not just looking for a deer, you're looking for the back of a deer, you're looking for an ear, you're looking for a little flick of a tail or just leg sticking out. So it's, I learned so much just, creeping up on deer it was it was always a blast and you can't get bored moving around but it the hardest part is you know people think still hunting and they'll cover 100 yards in you know 10-15 minutes you're going 100 yards and you know thick terrain it should take you, you know, a good hour it's funny that you mentioned that i mean everybody the the still hunting aspect of it to me is that's the most difficult part because it's like if i can see from here to there, you know, say I can see 50 yards, like seems like I'm a, I, uh, naturally going to just move up to the next tree, give it a couple seconds and not give it a minute or whatever. Um, I think that that's probably the most difficult thing for most guys, but it's funny that you say that about like the little things. So that was what I was going to ask you is like, what are the little things that you notice? But when you say that you're looking for, for different, you know, things in the woods, that horizontal thing. Like last night I was driving around with my daughter glassing and I'm like, I'm like, Hey, look, there's turkeys up there on the road. There's deer way back there. And she's like, how can you see so far without binoculars? And it's like, I'm not looking for deer. I'm just looking for something out of place. You know, yeah. like that doesn't, that doesn't look right. And it's funny. You walk, as you're walking through the woods, you know, if you, every step you take is a different scenario. It's a different view. Every single step you take whether it's a six inch step or whether it's a three foot step, your whole visual changes of what you're seeing in the woods. So if you're cruising, you're walking, you know, 20 yards in 30 seconds, you're walking by a lot of stuff or you're always, the hardest part is you're focused on looking ahead, looking at your feet. So you're not stepping on stuff, making noise, but you're also looking ahead. So like when it's really loud out, you know, crunchy leaves, I literally will yelp like a turkey and as I'm walking, scratch, I'm yelping with my mouth. Or, you know, when there's a lot of squirrels around, I'll walk like a squirrel. So I'll literally drag my feet and then stop and then move my feet around. Stop. So I'm making a ton of noise. But you're walking up on squirrels, you know, five feet from you because they think you're another squirrel coming. Like uh, two years ago, I knew this buck was bedded up on this ridge. He had been there all summer. He was five and a half years old, so his home area just shrunk. He was just living right there. And I was so concerned opening day. I was like, I don't know how in the world I can get there. So I was playing with the wind. I accessed a little 50 acre piece. I accessed from the south side. The wind was screwy. 
So I backtracked, tried another access, the wind was screwy. Finally went all around and it just seemed like the stupidest way to access it. But, and it was so loud and so calm, but I was just like, I don't screw it. Just walk just like a squirrel. I made an obnoxious amount of noise. But the second I got to my tree, you know, it probably took me a good 20, 30 minutes to get set up. I was going so slow because I knew that that dude was right there. Community scrape right there. Um, I had a salt stump that I'd been soaking for over 10 years. Um, he was hitting that regularly. He was just shedding his velvet. Literally five minutes after I'm, I, I was set up, I saw him 50 yards away, stand up and start rubbing a tree. It was, if I just walked in like a normal human, there's no way in hell he would have been there. So in, in that scenario, it, it just seems like completely ridiculous. Like, and you know, that Dan Infall says, you know, dating the fat chick, all that sitting by the road, doing things that you wouldn't tell your buddies about. Like, you know, I just, I, I think of like a couple of different things. I think of a, if you would have just, I mean, I, I, I picture you just kind of hopping through the woods, like you're pretending you're the Easter bunny to, to, to some degree. And then if there was another hunter or somebody saw you'd be like, what in the world is this guy doing? Yeah. But then the other side of that is like, how do you, I don't know, like in the buck bedding world and, you know, in the hunting world, even in general, like there's so many times where you go out and you don't see anything like what, what aside from that, huh? Was there like, what was the first time you tried that and that it was successful or like, how does that enter your mind? Cause it just seems like, you know, people say think outside of the box or like whatever, but that's. That, that's kind of out there i'd say yeah, i mean it's if you if you ask any one of my buddies they know if it's raining out i don't care if it's torrential rain thunderstorm or it's just drizzling they know i'm in the woods if it's a bright sunny beautiful bluebird day they're like they don't know if i'm in the woods if it's raining i'm in the woods because i mean your sense controlled it's quiet it's you know it's the time to still hunt a nice drizzly rain leaves are soaked i mean it's just almost foolproof um, but then, you know, as I was younger, I was like, well, it's not always raining out. It's not always quiet during the fall. The woods are always obnoxiously loud and just watching animals. You, know, you watch a freaking squirrel go through the woods. You're like, you're convinced it's a 200 pound buck coming. Like, no, it's a little half pound squirrel. You know, they're making a ruckus. So I guess, I don't know when it dawned on me, but it did. Um, and then just watching hunting shows, you know, growing up. I have every freaking very outdoors video you could ever imagine, real tree. And I remember watching, uh, I think it was, um, uh, what is, or whatever his name is, having a brain fart. Um, he was stalking an animal and it was super loud and he took his boots off. So I remember I was like, I don't know, 13, 14 years old. I'm like, I was up on a ridge, I had my gun, I couldn't get a shot. There's a bunch of does down this massive ridge. And I was like, well, look down, like it's super loud, but take my boots off. So I did. And I ended up stalking in. I probably went 100 yards to get, you know, close enough for a 50-yard shot. It was so thick. But I can remember it was just so much easier to feel your feet and what you're stepping on. You know, it brings you back to being primitive. I mean, you can feel so much. You step on a stick and it's like, oh, you stop. Pick your foot up. You know, you're rolling your feet until you feel what you're stepping on. Um, I, I remember that because I actually, it took me longer to find my boots than to drag the deer out. 
totally forgot where I left them. But I mean, from then on, it was, that's, I mean, it sounds stupid, but it's easy. And, you know, walking like a squirrel, walking like a turkey. The only problem with if walking like a turkey, if, if there's a lot of turkeys in the area, if you call any in and then they spook, you know, it could ruin your hunt. But I mean, can't really mess up walking like a squirrel. Just literally shuffle your feet, stop. Shuffle your feet, stop. But yeah, you feel kind of stupid. But so then, like, fast forward and said that you're like a wildlife biologist, right? So when I think, I, I just think back to like high school or like even like trying to figure out what you're trying to do in college, right? Like wildlife biologist, I think like, oh, you're taking fish samples and you're looking for E. coli and you're going out there and you're saving the monarch butterflies and doing all this like hippie stuff. Like I don't remember seeing like go out and just murder deer all night for eight months out of the year. So like how, like how did all of that come about? It was, uh, I grew up working on a farm right next door to my house since I was like, since I was old enough to pick up a hay bale. Um, and, and that farmer knew a friend who owned this company that did this contracting for suburban deer management. And so I just started hanging out with them since I was a you know, 14, 15 year old kid. And that turned in, you know, I'd work for him in the summer. I'd work for him. He'd, you know, when I was in college, I'd convince my professors to give me, you know, a couple weeks off. So I could go work on this project that counted towards my credits. So it was a, I was, I basically had the job lined up before I got out of college. Um, so I was told I needed the wildlife biology degree because, you know, there's a lot of science that goes behind killing deer in such a um, sensitive area. I mean, when I say we're sharpshooting deer, we're shooting suppressed 223s with tack lights or night vision, thermal scopes at night in neighborhoods. So picture, you know, a suburb like town and country, Missouri, a suburb of St. Louis. I'm shooting you know, in a good night, anywhere from 16 to 20 deer in the front yard of a $5 million house surrounded by other million dollar houses. So there's no error to mess up. Um, it's all headshots. Um, and you get, so you work through the group of deer. So, you know, a group of does come in, you work down the age, the age structure, you find the, excuse my French, the cuntiest doe, the alpha doe, and you start with her, you shoot her. So when you shoot a deer in the head, it drops to the ground, you have that couple seconds of total confusion for the other deer. Like what just happened? If you shoot them in the lungs, one deer runs, they all run. So you shoot them in the head, they drop. Every other deer is like, what just happened to mom? They bounce back. You start tapping through the group, get down from the tree, put a pet bag on them. So you don't have brains and blood all over the lawn. Um, hide them behind your tree, jump back up in the tree and you continue on. Uh, we also did a lot of, um, sterilization. So overectomies on those, uh, we did a big project in Staten Island. We actually neutered all the bucks. So that's all dark guns. Um, you know, we did, uh, Island eradications, um, mule deer and elk out of helicopters and we did a lot of cool stuff. I was in Guam for three months, uh, working on Philippine deer and pigs. So it was, you know, there's when every, most of the projects we did, you know, we did a lot of necropsies and studying different uh, parasites and you know we always had a vet with us uh, but i mean it was it was a blast it was really cool but like i said it was i lived in a hotel with guys for eight months out of the year you know it was a great life for a single dude but i couldn't imagine raising kids like that 
So I want to talk about like the sterilization side of it and especially from like a wildlife biology standpoint of it. But like in that experience of going out at night in these suburban areas, all of these things, like, was there anything that you picked up or what did you learn during that time? Like about deer, about deer movement, about things that can help guys as, you know, just regular deer hunters. Just, you learn I learned so much about just deer in general, um, especially the way deer interact with humans. I mean, when you're out there setting up your tree stand and your bait sites, the deer, they're, they could be 10 yards from you. Like you feel like you could pet them. You know, people are hand feeding these deer. You're in such a suburban environment. There's no hunting. There's no firearms discharge. There's no bow hunting. There's nothing. That's why we're in there for deer vehicle collisions, Lyme disease. We're lowering the deer population because there is no hunting. And even if there was hunting in that environment, hunters could not lower the population like we could. In two weeks, we could kill four to 500 deer. All that meat's donated to soup kitchens, hunters are hungry. Um, but just learning about deer. So the difference between deer know the difference between a uh, normal human and a hunter. They know when they're being hunted. So even though I'm in that suburban environment as a normal human, the second I'm in that tree, they know. Like they are, they're winding me. They're winding me, even though they just walked by 30 people that are walking through the park. They were bedded in that park all day long, and God knows how many hundreds of people walked by them, and they knew they weren't a danger, or they were in that spot where they had an escape. The second you start hunting them and shooting them, it's a whole different ball game. So, you know, a lot of guys, oh, I sub, you know, I'm sub hunting in a suburban area. The wind doesn't matter. Well, it does. You know, when you're right there on top of them in their area. It's something they know when they're being hunted. You know, it's as simple as that. So what you learn, just the deer behavior, understanding how a deer behaves, how it lives. I mean, their whole life goal is to survive. You know, they're being hunted constantly, whether it's by coyotes or cars or hunters, you know. So just learn deer behavior, deer movement, wind, thermals, um, the amount of trail camera data that we went through. I mean, you're talking millions of pictures a year. Um, it's, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. You know, we weren't just wild rednecks running into a suburban area and just blasting the heads off a deer. You know, it's very meticulous, very structured, very planned, very safe, no room for error. I mean, you can't just start pumping bullets into a deer and have them run around the neighborhood. So it was, you know, and our biggest threat was the animal rights activists and hunters. So when we were shooting in an area where there were hunters, they were our worst enemy because they didn't like us because we were lowering the deer population for them and they thought they could do it themselves, which statistically proven they cannot. Um, and the anti-hunters, you know, we had tires slashed, we had windows broken, we had death threats. They wanted to behead us and our family just like we did to the deer. When you shoot a deer in the head, their heart, it's uh, called ratatakia, something like that. Their heart is still pumping for a good couple seconds to a couple minutes. And their, their muscles are going through like a reflex. So they're motionless for a couple of seconds. And the second you get down and you throw that head bag on them, you're dragging them out of the area so other deer don't see them. Sometimes they're kicking and flipping around. They have no brain. The brain's gone. Call it canoe top. Bullet goes in. It's such a frangible bullet that it explodes. And the reason for that is you don't want a bullet to travel through the brain and continue going. So it goes in, 40-grain bullet, 40-50-grain. So frangible, it explodes. Brain's gone. The whole top of the skull is gone. But 
there's videos of us dragging a deer and people say, oh, they're suffocating a deer. The deer's still alive. You know, so it was, it was, you know, intimidating as, some, as sometimes. A lot of times we had to have police ex- escorts um, or you'd have, you'd be shooting in an area where, you know, this little old lady was feeding these deer for her entire life. And then here we come in to blow the deer's heads off. And she comes running at me, screaming, please don't do it, crying. I'm like, ma'am, I totally understand. I get it. But this is my job. Yeah, I'm sorry. So and that's when you call a cop and he comes and drags her away from beating her to death with her high heels. But <laughs> it was it was a cool gig. So from all that trail cam data and all that time in the tree in this nocturnal setting, you know, for guys that want to hunt bigger bucks or anything like that, was there any takeaways that you could take from there that, that maybe surprised you or things that you didn't, you know, that, that you had an aha moment kind of? A lot of it was like <clears throat> just seeing how like groups of deer behave when you have your family groups of does. And then your subordinate bucks and just like the bit, the age structure of deer, they're a whole community. You know, you could have, you know, a couple alpha does that are there with their fawns or offspring that they've been living in the same area for, you know, we shot deer that were 18, 20 years plus because we had radio collared them years ago. Hmm. So the amount of stuff we learned from radio collaring deer was incredible. And I, I was fortunate enough to get on and help out with a couple studies from uh, grad students and doctor programs where we were tracking mature bucks with radio collars in some fenced in areas and some wild areas. Um, but how you learn how they move, first of all, how lazy a mature deer is, um, their movement during the day, everyone thinks a nocturnal buck is just laying in his bed all day long, not moving. And the second he's dark, he's up and at it. That's not true. He's up all day long, up, down, up, down. He may only go, you know, 20 feet during the day, but he finds that one safe little hole and he's, content there he'll get up and feed they have to feed constantly all day long you know they're not laying down for 12 hours um so you, and you learn how to if you want to hunt that mature buck you can't just forget about all the other deer you have to hunt the entire group of deer the second you step foot into those woods the deer know so you know you can't just blast by does and be like oh screw them it doesn't matter i'm after this buck that buck is sitting back and he knows what's going on by all those other deer he knows when those subordinate bucks come in and something ain't right and they leave even if they don't blow or they don't run they pick up on all that stuff and the amount of mature bucks that i've watched just sitting in the back just chilling watching everything go on um was pretty cool so just basically the whole point of story is learning how the whole it's you're basically hunting when you hunt when you have one target buck you're hunting a whole community of deer so it's obviously access is the biggest biggest thing in the world access knowing the wind thermals and you know how to get into an area without deer knowing which is pretty much impossible but getting into that area with the most minimal amount of intrusion and then uh, from a wildlife biologist standpoint like the sterilization of deer so i feel like there's got to be like some sort of dichotomy there with you because like you're a hunter and you kill these deer and you donate the meat and now you're essentially just harming these deer. I I don't know. I I don't know how invasive or not invasive that procedure is, but you're taking them out of their environment, taking them over here, giving them whatever surgery, chemicals, whatever, and then sending them back out 
you'd think that that would be traumatic to a deer, uh, to an animal that you care about, but maybe not. (laughs) The only like sad part I would say was, you know, deer, their whole entire life revolves around breeding and reproducing. So when you take that away from them, they're still getting bred, but they're not reproducing, obviously. So like an ovarectomy on a doe, you tranquilize it, bring it back to a mobile vet station. You know, you're transporting on a stretcher very carefully. Like we're treating them like zoo animals, you know, very professional. Um, tiny little incision um, right in their belly. Find the ovaries, take them out, cauterize them, sew them back up, give them a shot of antibiotics, and they're back to life in no time. Um, but it was basically it came it all the surgical sterilization came down to funding. You know, the animal rights activists, they would donate millions and millions of dollars to have you sterilize deer, where they would fight you if you want to kill them. So they're it's all up to the community. So say a town has a problem with deer, they're trying to get the funding, it's a big budget. Animal rights activists will jump in, but well, let's sterilize the deer. Here's a couple million bucks. So that's your only option. But we had projects where we'd sterilize and shoot. Um, we had projects where we were sterilizing um, for like a patrol for a study, uh, like what, like Staten Island. That came down to it'd be almost impossible to sterilize all the does or to kill all the deer, and people didn't want all the deer dead. So that's why we went to sterilizing the bucks, and everyone thought that was impossible. Said you can't do it. We did it and it worked. So it's, it was definitely different. It was fun. I'd much rather shoot them. That's what I was really good at. But. Well, it just seems like from, you know, so a lot of that makes a, a lot more sense and sheds a lot of light on some of the things that are happening here, like in Michigan. Like, so there was a big budget to go ahead and sterilize these deer in Ann Arbor. Well, if you think of the community, the extremely liberal community around the University of Michigan and everything, it makes a lot more sense if there's donors saying, hey, we're, we'll give you the money to sterilize them. We know we have a problem rather than because everybody, all the hunters are like, just sell different licenses and, you know, let the hunters go in and do it. And I mean, f- from the way that you've uh, spoken and kind of laid things out, especially for the margin of error type scenarios and you know talking with taylor chamberlain and like what those guys do in people's backyards regularly um it it totally makes sense that you're you know the average hunter isn't going to go and you know pay to clean somebody's pool when the deer dies in there or when the blood trail goes over the kids play set and all that stuff you know yeah and the uh the recovery rate for the average hunter it's not that great so that plays a huge part in it but I guess the biggest thing that never really made sense to me was, okay, you sterilize the deer population over, you know, a 10 year, 15 year time period dramatically goes down. I get it. But that deer can still get hit by a car. It can still carry Lyme disease. It's still eating your bushes. You know, it's still going to live for a suburban deer could live 12 to 18 years. No problem. So that was the only thing that was, didn't really make sense, but. I was getting paid. So, <laughs> so when you're let's, we can move over to like some of the wild edge type stuff. Um, but like, so when you were in the trees in these setups, like at that time, like what were you using? Cause I'd imagine that those had to be somewhat mobile. They, I mean, you weren't just setting a ladder stand for a month you, in somebody's backyard or front yard. You know, the old, uh, I forget who made them. 
the old tree lounges. Okay. It was a climber. So we just used um, the actual tree stand part. We didn't use the platforms. We didn't climb. We just used bolts in the trees and then those little aluminum steps that you clip onto the flag bolt. Um, I don't think they make them anymore, but that was foolproof for us because we only needed one set of like 12 little steps. And then we had a million lag bolts. And, you know, in a one project, we could have 40 to 50 trees, baits like prepped and ready to go. And depending on the wind and activity that day and trail camera data, that's where we're going. We're bouncing around. So you have one tree stand. And the reason we use the tree stand was because we, you know, we would have it you know, at an angle like that, you know, pretty much parallel to the ground. So you're, we had foot pegs on. So your knees are up like this. So when you're shooting, you always have your three points of contact. So you're always stable. No matter where you go, switch hands, you're around the tree, you're locked in and solid. Um, and we, you know, some areas like New Jersey, I swear to God, the New Jersey deer, they come in 100 yards away. They're staring up into every tree. You know, it takes them an hour to come in. They're staring up every single tree. So it was a lot of areas where hunters were actively hunting. You'd be sitting next to a ladder stand. Ladder stand is 10, 12 feet off the ground. We're 30, 35 feet up in the air. Nosebleed height. And those deer are staring at that ladder stand. Just staring at it. You know whole way in it was crazy um but yeah that was the setup you know super super comfy you would sleep in the thing but the biggest thing was having that stability to have an anchor point and so you said when you were younger and you know you and your buddies and you were uh familiar with the step family or or whatever um so how did you when you were first introduced to the wild edge steps and, and that's kind of like where everything kind of started there. What was your first impressions? Uh, yeah, I was 14 years old. My dad and I were teaching a bow hunter safety course. I was a junior instructor. So I was doing a section on uh, calling deer and field dressing. And then my dad did a section on uh, private land. In Connecticut, you need a private land permission slip. You need a permission slip signed by the landowner for your hunt private land. And you have to have it on you at all times. And I remember Jim Step, the inventor of the steps, step ladder. He was uh, in the class because he always came to Connecticut from Maine with his buddy to hunt. But Connecticut made a new rule where if you didn't have a hunter safety certificate, you had to get one, blah, blah, blah. So I was doing the course. My dad pulled out a whole wad of private land permission slips. <clears throat> and Jim pulled us aside at the end of the course and said, hey, I got some uh, steps, uh, hunting product that I'd love to trade you guys for uh, access on some private land that you have. They're like, sweet. So he took us to his van and showed us the steps, gave us a little demo. And honest God, I have the same couple sets that he gave me when I was 14 years old. And, you know, I've honestly God been using them since. So with every combination of every climbing system, climbers, ladder, you name it. But, um, yeah, that's, that's how it all started. And I hunted, I've been hunting with Jim every year since I was, 14. But uh, like I say, the the first impression, like, because you obviously didn't just say these are the end all be all because you hunted with every other thing known to man after that. So, like, you're like, cool, we got some more hunting stuff or something else I don't have to buy or like, uh, these might work, these might not. Yeah, I mean, the second I used them, I was like, you know, cool. Those are sweet, you know, I wasn't like, oh, Holy shit, like a first truck thing, you know? But I used them, 
I left them in trees for years. And then it really didn't dawn on me how awesome they were until I started mobile hunting. So around that uh, 16 to 18 year range, you know, in high school, that's when, you know, I was mobile hunting. You know, I take my set of eight steps and that's when, when it dawned on me. So I can remember as a kid, your hands are freezing, trying to screw in a screwing peg into a tree. You're like, oh my God, your hands feel like they're going to break and bleed. Um, and then climbing up them and climbing them down, it just hurt. And um, so that's when I went mobile, that's when it really dawned on me how awesome they were, hackability, um, and how sturdy they were, especially, I mean, before saddle hunting platforms existed, it was a ring of steps, three to four steps around the tree. You know, and that's still my go-to. Yeah. So, um, we've got some, I, I, I bought some when we started all of this and like, as I alluded to before, like I would have to sell everything and just be like, I'm just going to use those because of the the thing. So I tried the knot, I did it a couple of times and then like, then I had a hard time camming them over and you, I, I, it's funny because I think you just did a video like on Instagram, TikTok, and all that. Like, if you're having a hard time carrying them over, like this is what you need to do. This is why the knots wrong. But then I was putting them on like really soft, like pine trees, and they're digging in. Uh, like, I was like, oh, it's too, it's too much, it's too, it's too much for me. And so I give them to John. John's like the super. I mean, he's from the listeners of the podcast. He's like a nerd, like an engineer type guy. And he's like, oh yeah, you just do this and this and this and like. Like these are great, and he used them. I mean, in, in light, like exclusively for uh, a year or so, and you know, we just doing this. You get, you know, we got to try this. We got to try this. We got to try this. But I mean, he still talks about them. Like he's like there. He, I think he used five and then used three for a ring of steps. Like just like what you're saying. But his biggest thing, and I was just talking to somebody this morning who's like probably still my favorite climbing system ever but his thing is like with the bag and everything like you climb up the tree you get done you put one in the bag put the rope out down 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 and then when you're at the bottom of the tree you're done and like for a lot of people who want to do all this one sticking and all this other stuff i mean there's a lot of merit to that like when you get down and you don't have to pack anything up you don't have to try and get these sticks to clamp together and you know, how, you know, where, what I do with the bungee or the night eyes gear tie or like all this other crap, you know, all of those things. Like, and a lot of times, like when you're done hunting, like you just want to be done. Like you just want to <laughs> get out of the woods, you know? Yeah. What I do is, um, and I tell everybody this on my way down, I don't even try to put them back in the bag. I just lower the steps, you know, lower them by the rope around the tree, not on top of each other. You know, if I'm in an area where I say, oh, screw this, I'm never coming back. Then I don't care. I'll just drop them. But like, you know, scatter them around. Then I get down and I pack them nice and neat, twirl them up so they're ready to go for the next hunt. Um, but yeah, some guys do put them back in the bag. I just found it so much quicker, easier. You know, you're down that tree in seconds. But, you know, just the versatility of, um, you know, when you get to a tree, it's not like, you know, you get to a branch or young tree. It's not like, oh, which side of the tree am I going up? I just get to a tree, which is the easiest way to climb up. And as I'm going, I can just uncam that step, swing it around and boom, I'm on the other side of the tree. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting. I mean, I'm just trying to think of like what way I want to go with this because I got a whole bunch of things. The from the from the step side of it, right? So i I deal with 
lots of other companies and talk to all the saddle manufacturers and, you know, you're coming at this from a much different perspective is like, so if I was a, a saddle hunting guy and I want to start a company and I'm like, okay, I got to have a saddle, right? The, I've tried every single saddle known to man and I don't like this saddle. I don't like this saddle. You know, I think I can make a better widget. Like I think I can make the best saddle. The problem that you have there is, and we're seeing it now in the industry, is if you don't have a climbing system and a platform and ropes and all this other stuff, now you have to essentially rely on your competitor to even just show off your product, right? And so for you, the other side of it is, is like you started with a climbing system and then it was like, what do you do when you get up there? But I, but I think it's a lot easier to come at it from that way to essentially not have to reinvent the wheel on making a stick that doesn't look like somebody else's stick or making a platform that doesn't look like anybody else's platform or making a saddle, you know, you can tweak a saddle. So like, how has that process been like for you? Like what, what made you decide, okay, I'm going to start this company or I'm going to take over this company. And then how did that go into, to where you're at now? Um, I guess it's just, uh, the way I grew up. Um, you know, if you didn't, you didn't have it you work to go get it if you couldn't get it you make you know kind of like the farmer mentality what do i have that i can make work without going and spending money kind of thing um so i've always been handy with my hands and making stuff so you know when we started with the steps um it went from the steps to okay where's everybody getting lines and ropes and lines and lines safety lines and tethers and so boom contacted the same rope company that made the rope for the steps hey can you make a legit climbing rope that we can use as a lines and line. Yep, boom. So I brought out a whole line of lines and you know went through the stages of going from the cheaper lines to the more high quality O-plux. Um so you know rope started and carabiners and then got into developing the saddles and the platform. So it was basically my sister who's one of my little sister, one of my biggest supporters and she worked for us for Wild Edge and she always said, Drew, just step back and show your customers what you do. You know, because I, I always had it in my mind, well, people know that, you know, they know, they know where to put their tether. They know how to climb a tree, but it's like, no, you really have to educate people because there's a lot of people that don't know. They look at you like, what in the world is, is this kid doing? So then I started, you know, I always, I still to this day, I have to step back. Like the other day, I posted that video on the, on the steps. And the amount of feedback I got was unreal because I hadn't posted a, that simple, simple thing in such a long time. So it was really just creating what I had done for so long and making legit products out of it. Um, you know, what works for me, my biggest mentality, my biggest motto is, you know, from the military, the KISS system, keep it simple, stupid. You know, I'm not about all the gadgets and gizmos. And, you know, if a saddle is designed correctly, you don't need a back band. Um, it, and I don't like stuff hanging off me. I don't like dump pouches. And we see some guys load their saddle up and up. But back to uh, you do whatever works for you, right? So I just stuck with the mentality of keep it simple. Everything should be simple. So you're going to hunt. Hunting should be the complicated part of hunting. Hunting and killing deer. Whether it's a button buck or a mature buck, that is the goal. It shouldn't be hard to climb a tree. We've been climbing trees since the dawn of man, right? So how do you make it so... When you go into the woods 
it's brainless, effortless to climb a tree. Because the second you get frustrated, then you get lazy. Second you get lazy, you're less productive, you lessen your chances at actually killing or seeing deer. So if climbing a tree is easy, simple, smooth, then you take that out of the equation for how to kill a deer. So the progression of the company from going from the steps to now creating a platform and then having a, a saddle line has been, I don't know, tumultuous <laughs> for you. Um, maybe not the, the, the easiest, uh, of, of roads and maybe as hadn't been like how you had seen it in your head. Like, did you, would it have been easier for you just to say, like, we have these steps, like maybe we'll make a platform or make a, make a tree stand instead. So you're, I don't know. I don't see all the, uh, biggest click for me was, um, when at early stages, I remember having, when I first started the company, I was having like a freaking mental breakdown. I was working side jobs. I was still contracting, killing deer. I was working side jobs, doing excavation, masonry work. <clears throat> I was all over the place and struggling to pay the bills. You know, I just rented the first shop that we had. I put an addition on it for the welding shop to make product in the house. Um, you know, I remember looking at my dad, like almost in tears, like how in the F Am I going to afford this? How is this making sense? All this money is coming in, but it's going out twice as fast. Like, how does this work? And that's when my first investor, my dad's best friend, came into the equation, knew nothing about hunting, self-made millionaire, first job was at Arby's. He started coaching me and investing in the business. And he's he would go on these coaching. Um, a lot of successful guys are into, they're always into learning more. So the whole coaching aspect, being coached by successful millionaires and then coaching other people. So he would have these programs, like he'd go to the coaching class that would, I don't know how much it costs, hundred grand. You know, he's going to learn more about how to build his business better. And he would send my sister and I those programs that he already paid for. So we got to do them for free. And one of them was from David Bayer and it was called Mind Hack. So how to basically, there's a lot of meditation stuff, you know, sit down, like you talk softly, close your eyes, you do worksheets, close your eyes, Break down what do you see in the next year? What do you see in the next two years? What do you see 10 years from now? And honestly, God, on my kids' lives, I was sitting there and I envisioned my new shop next to my new house on a piece of land. You know, I, I envisioned taking the kids to the freaking bus stop while mom had already left for work. Um, I just pictured that lifestyle and that's the lifestyle that I have today. Um, and a lot of it, the biggest whole point of that was it was find your niche. Like, yes, you can have a product and you can sell it to a million different people that use it for a million different things, but you need to take that, say if it's only 7% of a million people, um, then you target that 7% as your niche. So I'm thinking in my head, what's my niche? Well, my niche is saddle hunting. And that was way before saddle hunting was cool. Um, so I was like, all right, that's my niche. My goal is to be the first one-stop shop for saddle hunting. I almost got there. Um, we're there today. But... You know, that was kind of the light bulb when I focused on my niche is saddle. But then it's funny because it almost got to such a drastic degree that I was so focused on saddle hunting that we often get questions from people. Hey, can you use the steps for tree stands? I'm like, you know, light bulb. All right. Settle down a little bit. Now, 
post pictures of using a tree stand, even though I don't use tree stands. So it's, it's pretty cool. Cause I can remember selling steps to guys, um, doing, you know, to wildlife biologists who are studying mushrooms, um, up in trees and need a mobile system to find a tree to study, pick mushrooms, wildlife biologists studying birds, um, in Malaysia. I sold a couple hundred sets of steps to these biologists. Um, people that have coconut trees in their yard, you can't put a ladder up to a coconut tree. It's pretty dangerous. So they climb the coconut tree with the steps to pick the coconut so they don't fall on their kid's head to kill them. Um, tree houses, playscapes, you know, just crazy stuff. But I was, you know, everyone was giving me ideas and I was so sporadic all over the place. Like, how do you target the market for climbing a coconut tree? But that's when I, you know, stepped it back. All right, niche saddle hunting, put everything into that. And that's when it's like, all right, I've already used a saddle. Why can't I make my own? You know, and then how do you find a company that can make the saddle? I failed three different t- times through different companies trying to make the saddle that I wanted until I found the right company. Um, and then, you know, ropes. How do you find the right company that are legit climbing ropes? Um, who can, if I can't make something, who can make it? And I learned to make it. And I invest in, like this shop I built it, to invest in down the road robotic welding for the steps. A lot more cost effective CNC robotic welding. You have a robot pumping out steps all day long instead of paying a welder to stand there for hundred bucks an hour. So it's, I mean, it's been a, it's been a game, it's been a long journey. But I mean, I'm the kind of guy where I get an idea and I just do it. I'm not methodical about it. The only thing I'm methodical about really is hunting. Um, when it comes to business, I just, I get an idea, I get something in my head, and I just. Hands back, head first, dive into it. Let's go. So, from from that side of it, like the the industry, like how long have you been involved in this? And then, where do you see like a like for you? Like, how do or how did like the trade shows and stuff fit in to that sort of? Uh, component of it and then the other side is like the the industry especially around the saddles seems extremely uh, in some ways like competitive and polarizing like where there's you know sometimes the animosity between different guys different companies and sometimes it's outward and then other times it's like you know, it's all bottled up and in inward, but it's, you know, there's still that, that feel. Yeah. It's, I mean, I learned, I swear I, I tell a lot of people, I, I, the only way I learn is the hard way. Um, sometimes that's the best way to learn, you know, by screwing up. Um, I've signed contracts without running by my attorney. Got screwed. I've shooken hands thinking that a man's handshake is worthy. And it wasn't. Um, I've been screwed a lot. I've, you know, it's, I, but at the same time, I don't look at the past. I just learned from it. Um, I can remember the first trade show we ever went to 2017 was the Harrisburg Great American Outdoor Show. I was so nervous. I'd never done a trade show. I've been to hunting expos, but never done one myself. I was freaking out. Um, but, you know, it was cool to see the progression of saddle hunting, you know, from 2017 to present day. 2017, 18, it was like, guys, look at you in a saddle on the demo pole of the show. And they're like, what in the freak is this guy doing? Like, 
I, what, what are you doing, kid? And then the next year, okay, kind of get it to present day. They're at your booth. Let me try it on. I've tried this. I've tried that. Boom, boom, boom. Let's, uh, they're all into it. You know, pretty much everybody knows what's going on. So it's cool to see that progression. Um, and then, you know, just learning. It's, everything's always changing. Um, but to me, competi- competition breeds innovation. I mean, there's no need to be suing people left and right because your stick looks like his stick and that platform looks like that platform. And, you know, it's like, why can't we just, if he is, that company's platform looks badass and it looks sweet, perfect, I love it. Well, why can't you just come out with something better? Or why can't you just improve on what you, improve on what you have and bring something better to the market? You know, that the, the biggest FU to your competition is to come out with something better, not to bad mouth them, not to, you know, go through legal battles and waste money. I'm all about investing money and spending money on assets, but I'm not, I hate wasting money. So it's, you know, I could have bought my, I could have put my kids through college, the amount of attorney fees that we've had throughout the years. It's sickening. You talk to an attorney on the phone for an hour, it's 650 bucks. So from, from that aspect of it or like the, uh, I guess, where do you feel like the climate of the, the hunting industry is? Because I, I say that, and I was thinking about this way back in the podcast where you were talking about running around and acting like a squirrel, right? Like the industry isn't going to sell you that because they don't make any money off it. They're not, I mean, it doesn't really seem where we're at right now is everything is like product based. Like this is going to help you. These are the best thing. Like, Oh, look at this. And I'm a, I'm a, a victim. I'm guilty of it also because it's like new and shiny and like, Oh, that'd be cool to try. That'd be cool to try. But you're just given, you know, just dollars, dollars, dollars and not, is it really going to help you? You know, That's I tell so many guys, you know, I try to preach back to keep it simple, stupid. It, like you said, buying the best newest bow isn't going to kill your deer. Buying the best $500 backpack won't kill your deer. Um, you know, all the little gimmicky stuff. It's there's yeah, your equipment has a lot to do with your success. Right. But it's, you know, when do guys go overboard into you know, making it so complicated that you're taken away from it and all the gimmicky stuff where it's like the biggest thing about hunting is learning how to hunt, right? Understanding not just hunting deer, but understanding how the whole entire ecosystem around deer affects deer and your hunting. There's a lot of other factors that can mess up a hunt besides deer, wind, thermals, buck bedding. Everyone's so focused on buck bedding, thermals, wind, buck bedding, thermals, wind. It's like, then guys go, well, if I'm going to hunt, I need to, A, I need to be 25 feet in a tree. I need the latest, greatest bow, saddle, backpack. I need to climb with one stick like him and do that. And they're forgetting everything else that goes into hunting. So it's, and you watch, you know, all the hunting shows. I used to love Drury Outdoors when they were hunting on a tree stands, rattling in deer, grunting in deer, calling at deer. It was freaking awesome. And then all of a sudden now they're hunting out of muddy box blinds and the hardest part about the hunt is opening the window. Like it's an extravagant thing to open the window to get a shot of the deer and a beautiful biologic field. It's like really not fun to watch. 
you know, so it's almost where that industry, industry, you have to kill big giant deer every year to be cool. You have to have the latest, greatest gear. Your camo has to match your backpack. Your camo has to match your boots. Your bow has to have cool, colorful strings on it. And it's like, there's not many people out there. Like, look at Fred Bear. What did he wear? He had a freaking stick and a string, a couple arrows and a flannel jacket. You know, the amount of deer I killed in Carhartts uh, with either a big lip in or a cigarette hanging out of my mouth. You know, I killed a lot of deer like that. Carhartts, stinky, soaked in diesel from stripping foundation forms, covered in concrete. I mean, it's it's just crazy to see how people are so focused on what they need and materialistic things. They forget about the basics. I can remember my dad and I, my first camo was going to the Quonset hut, go to an army surplus store and getting old fatigues, you know, or stealing my dad's L.O. Bean polar fleece tree bark camo. I thought that was the greatest thing in the world. It was so cool and cozy and warm. Um, it was just, life was so simple back then. It was, and it was so fun. Like my buddies and I, the amount of deer drives we did, just having fun, like killing every spike in the woods, four points. I mean, you name it, anything to walk by, we killed it. We would go in the woods animal hunting for the 22. We're shooting songbirds, squirrels, chipmunks, crows, you name it. We're just killing stuff. And it was so fun. And then, you know, I found myself getting so focused on, the reason I got so focused on killing mature bucks is killing deer for a living almost, I wouldn't say ruined me, but it changed me. When you spend eight months out of the year blowing the head off of mainly does and fawns, your appetite to kill a doe is gone. I, my rule is if she's, if she's being a, you know what, then she dies, but I rarely kill a doe, you know, except for meat, but the, to kill a mature buck, it was just, it was more of a challenge and less likely to happen. Um, so that, you know, that changed me a bit, but we still go back to doing the drives. You know, when I'm with my family, my uncles, cousins, and sister, dad, you know, friends, we go, we do drives all year long with the bows, with guns, shotguns, muzzleloaders, you name it. And it's just a blast. You know, you don't care who kills what. It's, it's just a good old time. But, you know, it, and then back to people on social media, if they kill a four point, it's only cool if it's on public land, you know, and I don't need to preach it. Everybody says it a thousand times, whatever makes you happy, you know. I've killed basket eight points that were maybe scored 30 inches that made me more excited than my 150 inch deer that I shot, you know? So for us, you know, I love bow hunting because of the, the challenge of it and all of the, I, I don't know. I think maybe I'm addicted to messing up. Like, I don't I like, because that's like what I feel like helps you grow. And like, it makes when you are successful that much, you know, sweeter, you know, because of all of the things that it took you to, to, to get there. Um, but you know, you're right. We're, we live in a day and age where, you know, social media says, it almost dictates like the kind of hunter or the kind of person or like kind of like what you're, you should strive to be. Right. And so I guess what would you say? Cause we've got a lot of listeners that, you know, they, they listen to us and they're like, well, I'm only going to bow hunt or I'm not going to, you know, I know this is a bow hunting show. I know you're a bow hunter, all these types of things. But I think like what you kind of said there is like, 
I think a lot of people are missing out on a lot of stuff by having this mindset of, well, I only can do this or I only can do that. Like, yeah. why can you only do that? Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even as, you know, I, I love gun hunting. You know, I love bow hunting to death. I would take that over anything in the world. But if I can put a high powered rifle in my hands and I can reach out to 200 yards, you goddamn right. I'm taking a rifle. You know, a buck with a rifle means just as much to me as a buck with a buck. You know, a dead mature deer is a dead mature deer. I don't care how you kill it. Um, so yeah, they def people definitely lost, you know, it's people don't, uh, I guess appreciate a deer kill with a gun versus bow. Or I'm a bow hunter only. Well, no, you're a hunter. You know, it doesn't matter what weapon you use. You're still a hunter. So, you know, and, you know, whatever, do whatever, just like, uh, what's your climbing system? What saddle do you use? What platform? How do you configure your platform? Where do you put your tether height? You use two lines up, you use a dump pouch. Well, you do whatever works for you. Right. Yeah. I think like from my perspective on that and like, that's why it'd be, it's, it's easy. Um, it would be easy for me to, to go to, uh, a saddle company and say, Hey, I want to be sponsored by you or whatever, because we talk a lot about saddle hunting. A lot of our stuff is centered around saddle hunting, but I don't want to not be able to have this conversation, right? right. Because, you know, trophy line or tethered or latitude or, you know, whoever they say, well, well, that's not good for, for us, you know? Right. Um, because I've tried just about every saddle known to man and I can, I feel like I can count like what you said, like what works for you, what works for you, what works for you. Like, I think, and you can probably do this too, but I can probably, when, when someone says like, I'm thinking about this saddle on social media and you, you can just read and like, look at their names, look at their profile picture and see like what they're going to say before they even say it. And so for me, I just shoot them a message and I'm like, Hey, what's your hunting style? What's your body type? Like, what's your goal out of all of this? And I can probably point them in the direction that they're going to be happier than if they just l looked in, at the pole and it said, I have a phantom, I have trophy line, you know, and all these guys are on staff, <laughs> you know? So it's like, it doesn't, it's, you know, have, that's why I respect your podcast so much. Cause you're so honest and you're not a fanboy of everything, which is that's, that's how you're going to learn. The post a podcast that's sponsored by a company. Well, of course, you know, the biggest marketing budget always wins. So of course, people here sponsored by this, that's all they're going to talk about. But, or you have people bashing your saddle and they love this saddle, but then it comes out in the comments, well, have you actually tried that saddle? Mm -hmm. No. Well, then how do you know? You're a Chevy guy, you're a Ford guy. You ever driven a Ford? You ever driven a Chevy? You know, it's back to whatever works best for you. And also, there's a lot of people out there that are getting paid to use products, mm -hmm. which is, you know, the infomercials. And it, it's, you know, there's girls that have YouTube channels of whatever amount of followers getting paid good money just to wear a product. I've never paid anybody anybody to use my products and i will never do that if i could have i would love to be able to afford to pay levi morgan but my you know just like made in america i always want to stick with that i don't i don't want to pay someone to use my stuff and talk about how good it was because they're getting a check mm -hmm. 
So with your saddle, like, so you sent me a couple saddles and I told you like, cause there is so many people out there that are like, just send me one, just send me your gear, just send me, just send me your stuff. And I'm like, I don't respect those people. You know, I mean, and people send me a lot of stuff like it's So it's not like this, but like, I'm not going to sit here and have a conversation with you about your saddle and never having seen it or held it or sat in it or done anything. Cause it's like, those guys are only like, Oh, it sounds cool. It looks great. Like, I can't wait to try it. I'll, I'll get on that, you know? Um, but so from the saddle perspective, like what went into this? Like, where did you take your cues from? Cause there's, I mean, I think in the, the saddle world, there's a few different companies that have a few different mentalities. And then I think there's some other guys who are actually real about what they say. And they say, you know, I, I really like this. I really like this. And this is how we made this product better. Or this is how we did this differently. And not, I just came up with this all on my own. I've never even seen another saddle. And this one, it's just, it just came to me like I'm a Jehovah's Witness. Sorry right. if you're a Jehovah's Witness. But like... <laughs> But, but like, so like you said, you don't like, uh, Molly or you don't like dump pouches and things like that, but this has like the harder, wider loops and it's got, it, it has a real TX five kind of styling, uh, to me. Matt Hopkins was the one that helped me. He built the first prototypes. So Matt helped me invent that saddle. Um, but that saddle started back in 2017 when I was messing around with my sisters, uh, she used to make lingerie for Victoria's Secret and design all kinds of clothing, wedding dresses. And so she, the seamstress, she could sew anything. So I had her develop some of my first prototype saddles and then trying to find a company to make them. I had uh, two companies that made the first couple prototypes that were complete garbage. Um, and then, you know, that evolved into working with other companies. Um, and that actual saddle right there, it was done, finished, ready to go to market three years, two years before it actually was allowed to come to market due to legal stuff, working with other companies, long story short. But that saddle was invented back when the only other companies in the market were tethered and airline. So we're talking back 2018-19. So that's, and it wasn't allowed to come out until all the legal BS was done. So I was behind the game. I would have been the first saddle hunting one-stop shop company in the entire market. So the one thing about this saddle that I'm, I'm perplexed by, I guess it was different. The, the leg straps are different. Uh, there's, I got another saddle over there that has a different set of, leg straps, you know, there's, there's like the normal buckles that, that are like the mini Cobra buckles or whatever. And this has a different, I'm not sure what you, you, what, what's the, the buckle that's on there, the main main, buckle. That saddle and everything on there, especially those leg buckles, they're made by Kong USA. Okay. So Kong, they make those in their factory. So those buckles, you know, I was looking at, I wanted a lightweight buckle for the legs that was easy to use, less noticeable than a big giant Raptor buckle. Um, so, but my biggest thing about the leg buckles was I didn't want three buck, three pieces of metal, three buckles sitting on my crotch. 
Because when you relax in the saddle, then they're all right there playing against each other. I don't care if you tape them or what do you do with them. Um, so that's why I positioned them to the side. So the leg straps are to the side up by your hips. Your waist buckle is over to one side. So there's nothing right in the middle. So you're not hitting your cam or your bow on anything, metal to metal, out of the way. So when Kong showed me those buckles, we went through. I can't tell you, <clears throat> excuse me, how many buckles we went through to try to find the right one. And that one was, was perfect in my mind. Okay. And then maybe maybe it's a cover your ass type thing. Maybe it's a, um, I don't know, insurance deal. I don't know what the, the, the reasoning is, but everybody has theirs. Uh, is there a reason they're not removable? Um, I, yeah, safety, liability. I mean, yeah, a G hook can work and work great. But, um, biggest thing I found with the G hooks is walking into the woods, they would fall off. And then you have two leg straps getting caught on shit and flapping around. And my biggest thing was when I put the saddle on, I want it to be tight. I want it to fit me. Everything to be sleek. And I don't want to know what's there when I'm walking in. So I want everything in there good. I don't want anything hanging off. That's why I don't like dump pouches. Um, I don't like stuff hanging, flapping. Um, so like when you're using eight millimeter rope, I mean, it's in my cargo pocket or it's in my, in my chest with my waist buckle around. Um, so just simple, what works like the, the whole style of saddle is always the one inch Molly loops on the back. Well, try to put a carabiner in that when you're sitting in it. You know, I always have two, three carabiners hanging off my saddle. I hook my bow to one on my back when I'm climbing. Um, you know, and as I get set up, my bow comes, my backpack comes off, goes to the tree. My bow comes from my saddle. So then my bow hanger goes on. So I have a whole system. But <clears throat> the biggest reason I have my bow on me is because how many times I've been climbing up or down a tree and you have deer come in and your bow is on the ground. Or you're trying to pull your bow up and it's smashing against limbs and it's just an absolute nightmare. So I always have my bow on me. So to have a bigger loop where you can mindlessly in the dark without thinking about it, grab a carabiner, hook it hook your bow or before I set up, if I haven't had the chance to put my backpack on a tree yet, I hang my backpack off my saddle. So my saddle is basically a giant utility belt as I'm getting set up. Um, so that was the whole reason of the bigger gear loops. And then in the side, there are bigger, wider with the three inch webbing that is for a dump pouch. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty comfortable. It's got the, uh, it's got the um, elastic right in the center, and then it's got the the pleats so that you can open it up. Now, with the pleats, you know, obviously, the the one that comes to mind for me is the Cruiser XC, but the Arrow Hunter one is like I think maybe the first one to do that. Is that the one that they were doing for you? Yeah, the well, they the Kestrel Flex was the one that they had. And then I liked the pleat, how it opened. Um, and that's when I developed the Yarrick, which failed. Um, the saddle didn't fail. It was a great saddle. They just, the Air Hunter couldn't keep up with the production that they had promised me to make the saddles. Um, so got out of that. But my biggest thing about the pleat was, yeah, an adjustable seat's great. It opens up. But if it opens up once and stays open, it's completely useless. You might as well just wear a bigger saddle. So my biggest thing was when I was working with Matt Tompkins, how do we develop a saddle that you can open and close and it stays open and closed? So I want to open the top or just the bottom, just the bottom, just the top. 
or I'm going to completely close it or open it and it actually stays in its form. So that's how we came up with that. Okay. And I like the fact that it's mesh. Like I've got one of the TX5s. I think this is Lone Star. And I, I, I like it. It's, it, the thing is beautiful. It's a like a work of art. Like he does amazing stuff. My main concern with it is it's so thick. Like yeah, in the winter time it would be great, but early season or for anybody that's like on the East Coast or like Florida or whatever, man, it just seems like it would be the hottest thing like known to man. Like so, I love that that this one is mesh, yeah, even with the the elastic in the center. Yeah, that was uh, one of the biggest things was, you know, a lot of Southern hunters saying that's why they love the yard because it was completely all mesh. And so that's why I stuck with it. And then I went back and forth with different colors and uh, camel patterns. And I was just, I just stuck with black. It's so neutral. Um, but then you also get the customers, well, not camel, deer are going to see me. Well, if a deer is staring at your ass, you got bigger problems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think that out. Uh, a lot you know you go back to the what you said about fred bear you know like i don't know if you're familiar with the uh, michigan guys down in georgia now jason samkoviak he's the traditional wilderness uh podcast it's like i don't know how long it is traditional wilderness and bow hunting podcast or whatever but he hunts in just like the walmart pants and like just a fl- fleece jacket and he's hunting with a longbow you know, shooting deer at six yards, and he's like, "You don't need camo. You just need the right setup." You know. That's all right. I tell a lot of guys that a lot of my buddies that will get frustrated halfway through the season. I always tell them, like, "Well, look what what are you doing? You're so focused on oh, this platform came out. I got to try it halfway through the season. This back, I got to try this backpack, this camo bone." I'm like, "Well, as you're changing stuff, like you got to think back to what worked, right?" Or if you screwed up, why'd you screw up? That's a success if you screwed up because you learn. And most likely you'll try not to do it again. Um, but to be so focused on all your gear, it's like, well, step back. Forget the gear. Don't even bring a saddle or a climbing system. Grab your weapon and go hunt. Still hunt. Walk. Learn. You know, scout the area. That's when you're going to learn. Mm. You're not going to. I remember last season, I. I switched from my Badlands pack to the Sika pack. It's pretty much the same exact pack, a little bit different. I was like a monkey fucking a football. It was, my system was so dialed in halfway through the season. I'd been preaching this and I did it to myself. I switched and I was all over the place. It took me a couple of hunts to really dial it in because I'm, I'm searching like with my memory as, as to where things should be and they weren't there. So I was slower. I was making mistakes. So it's, no, just keep it simple. Go yeah. back to your roots. You know, go if you want to learn. You want to learn a lot about deer hunting. Go squirrel hunting. Grab a twenty-two or get some blunt tips for your bow. Go try to kill some squirrels on the ground. You'll walk up on a lot of wildlife. Hmm. Might have to uh, employ that since uh, our small game season starts a lot sooner than our uh, our bow season does. Um, and so, so I got your platform here too right and this is you said you've got some but they're not out yet and this is another thing like I, one of the things that i really like about this whole conversation and about you know talking to you is like i asked you i'm like hey this platform you know and i knew that you were working with 
Matt Garris to, you know, with out on a limb and he helped you out, I think with the perch and then with the platforms, you know, and I'm saying, Oh, this has a real, you know, out on a limb feel. And you're like, it's cause you make some. And the same thing with the TX five though, it just gives me like a, a, a really good idea of like you as a person, as a businessman, because like, it's a lot more efficient to have somebody that you can work with that does what you want to do, you know, like knowing you're not the smartest person in the room, right? <laughs> like, like, Hey, I could try to reinvent the wheel and I can make my own saddle and we come up right. with this thing from scratch or, you know, there's this guy over here doing it. He does great work. Maybe we can work with him and yeah. he can make a saddle for us or he can make a, a, a platform for us. So what did you have for platforms? prior to this one and then what what went into the design of this like what what needed to change to get this one you know to what it is right now well that's you know it goes back to my entire life my dad most positive guy in the world we grew up with little to no money um but no matter if we were bankrupt broke what happened growing up my dad was always the happiest cheerful positive dude in the room um, but his biggest thing that he pounded in my head was surround yourself by people who are better than you, who are more successful, smarter. So if you surround yourself by smarter people, you will be successful. Um, so Matt Garris, as, as an example, out on wind manufacturing is my competitor, but he is like a brother, father to me. He, we talk, you know, almost every day, if not four or five times a week. Um, and he is the greatest guy in the world. We're best of friends. He's almost like a father figure to me. We work together. Trophy line. I love those guys. We work together. They own the trademark of Saddle Up, but they don't mind letting me use that kind of thing. I pick their brain on the, their business model. And what do you do with your pro staff and your ambassadors? Like, how do you structure that? And, you know, Nick Betts laid it out to me. This is how we do it. Gave me advice. It's like, that's the way it should be in my mind. You know, I'm totally respectful and open-minded to everybody. And um, I love learning and creating relationships, but the second you overpromise and undeliver or you screw somebody, you're cut off. And that's what's led to a lot of hiccups in the business. But, you know, working with Matt, this whole story behind the platform is I have, I can't tell you how many dozens of prototypes of the perch that I was trying to design a platform that was either detachable or connected permanently to the step. Like here, I have a step that works perfect as a platform, but we want a little more space on it. We want a little more foot room. Um, so I was struggling, struggling. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, from a friend of a friend, my buddy Garrett, who's a modern assassin on Instagram, he was friends with Matt. I had met Matt at a trade show my first year at Harrisburg. He bought a set of steps. So I'd already known him, but then he reached out to me on Facebook. Hey, I got something for you. I think I can make it work. Like, okay. So I called Garrett. Who is this dude? I think I met him once. Boom. He's like, he's a great dude. Listen to him. He's smart. He knows he's, he can, he's a fabricator. So I get on FaceTime. This is right before the Iowa show. Um, and that's boom. We're literally developed the perch through FaceTime. He's in Oklahoma. I'm in Connecticut. You know, it's went through ideas. He's like, boom, I'll have this made. I'll have this idea tomorrow morning, Saturday morning. Boom. Made it. Uh, we're going through how to change out of, you know, I'm critiquing it. Boom, boom, boom. Long story short, that's how the perch was developed. I paid him a royalty um, for developing the perch. Every perch that was sold, I gave him X percent for two years. Um, created that great relationship. 
and then boom, guys wanted a bigger platform. But Matt's bracket for the Ridge Runner and the podium was so popular. It's a foolproof, awesome bracket he makes. I said, Matt, can we kind of do a similar agreement? And I can, can you make me a bigger perch on your bracket? So I bought the brackets from him at my company in Texas, the Fab Shop, make the platform, boom, merge them together. We have an out of the limb, half an out limb product, half wild edge product together, boom. Matt, now I love how, what you did with the new Ridge Runner with the post. Think that could be freaking sweet. Can you make me one with the battlement platform? Perch battlements, different sizes. Absolutely. Boom. That one, that's how that was born. So it's, you know, working together and it's so easy and it's fun. You know, bringing someone with guys that have similar ideas and, you know, we vent to each other all the time. We strategize what's your marketing company doing? What's your company doing? What, what are you paying for insurance this year? You know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, down to the nitty gritty where, we're a team, but we compete. Sure. So I think that's awesome because there's only so many people that are going to have the same, uh, I guess, problems as you are. Like you can't talk to your insurance guy or your auto body guy about the the same types of issues that you're dealing with. You know, it's different right. industry, different liabilities, different, different complete climate. So it's great from that perspective, I mean, I do that with podcasts all the time. Like I've got tons of friends that I've made just through podcasting that I talk to regularly to try to, you know, see what are you doing? How are you doing this? Like, how can we be better? You know, it's like, a you know, I grew up in a small town. Everybody knows everybody graduating. My graduating class was 90 something people. I mean, everybody knew everybody in towns, but the beauty about that is even to this day, you know, when I was building a shop, you know, if I had a question about plumbing or electrical, I knew exactly who to call. If I had a question about where to get cheaper lumber here or what company you use to build that shop, boom, can you come help me? Hey, my machine's down. Can I borrow yours? I'll pay you, blah, blah, blah. It's just like a community. And in my mind, I always thought that's how business was until you really, you realize the hard way how also important an attorney and contracts and writing were. A guy's handshake only goes so far sometimes. Um, so, but yeah, it's just like, it's always a community. Like, that's why I love this town. And I'd be in Idaho in a heartbeat if I could take up all my buddies and my family and move them with me. But I'd be, if I just went alone, I'd have to restart what I built for 30 years here. You know, mm-hmm. in my mind, that was always how the, an industry would be, but sadly it's not, but it can be though. So in, <sighs> I, I guess it's it's the royalties thing, and I guess that's probably the way that it should work. You know, it needs to work for for everybody. But developing that relationship and like having this platform, like you know, completely. I mean, it would be so easy for him to just sell this, right? I mean, like, and just not have to ship it to you, not have to just be like, all right, I'm just going to do this, right? So. Like what of this is from like your design? I mean, did Matt do all of this or like what, what are your favorite features about the, the battlement platform? And I mean, I'm not a platform guy. Um, and I can tell you what I, what I like about this and some of the concerns that I had just from my perspective. Um, but. So I I will give Matt 100% credit for what's in your hands right now. Um, starting with the perch, like we, he was say 80% the inventor on that. 
and I helped a little bit like critiquing small details that mattered. But so he's he's on the patent for the perch as the inventor. I'm the co-inventor, whatever. Um, so he that is stemmed from out on land manufacturing, all my platforms. Um, so he gets all the credit for that. What I love about it was at first I was ring a step guy, came out with a perch. I grew to like the perch just because it was so small, compact. Um, and then guys got into a lot of the reason I developed other products was for the customers. If it was up to me, I would never, I probably would never have a bigger platform. The guys had in their mind, like they go from tree sand hunting to saddle hunting. They think they're still tree sand hunting. Like I need a giant platform for my feet. Well, your platform is just a way to get around the tree. So if you just have one single platform, it may be harder to get around the tree than if you have a step on each side or a peg or something, you can stick your heel, your toe in. So when I go to my weak side on my right side, I turn around the tree. If there's a step on the left side of the tree, I'm shoving my toe right in that baby. It's like a stirrup. I will never slip, slide, turn. I'm locked in. Um, so everybody, we got in that a couple of years ago, that phase of XL platform, XL platform. It's got to be big, 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 big. And in my mind, I'm like, it makes no sense, but guys want a bigger platform, so I'll make it. So I came out of the Battlement, which was a bigger perch than that's bracket, and I grew to love it. I used it because it's my product, and I should probably know how to use it. And be taking photos of me actually using it, fell in love with it. I'm like, this freaking thing is sweet. But then I'm like, well, it'd be sweeter if we could angle it more. So without changing the bracket and gusting it and making different angles for that leverage and going through that, that's when that newer platform came out with the angle, with the post. And then I'm looking at that top step going, that could be sweet, but I don't know if it is. And I tried it when Matt brought it to me at Harrisburg. That's when we, I first put my hands on it. I had seen pictures of drooling over it. Not only does it look sexy as hell, once you stand on it, it is rock solid. Like you cannot move that thing. Like you could bash it with an excavator on the side and it's not going to budge. It just locks to that tree with just the way the standoffs are, and the way you cam it over. Like I was telling you, you can't just suck that baby to a tree and then try to cam it over it. It'll go so tight that it'll be doing a wheelie. You got to get that strap, not you know, in that right spot and then cam it over. Um, but once I started using it with that top step, it was like, this is money. Like I can tow hook this. I can hook my heel. My biggest thing in this in the saddle is I don't want to ever feel like I'm going too far, and then you're in the oh shit moment of I'm done, like I'm spinning. So to have that ability to lock it on, and that would, you know, if I have the steps, I always have one on each side. But with that platform, I feel like I could be 100% successful without anything on the side. Yeah, so like I say, I'm I'm not a a platform guy. Um, not a ring of steps guy. Like I like having the top stick and have it that small little tiny platform and that artisan outdoor fabrications one was one of my favorites. I ran the wingman all year last year. And I think the wingman, uh, maybe, you know, right off the top of your head on this one, what the depth of it is, but it's less than say like a predator or the EDP or the seeker. That is less of, as less depth than the battlement. The battlement, you're getting more depth to the tree because of the bracket. But with that, with this one, it's just basically the biggest thing is the grip on the platform. Your feet are like glue on that thing. And just like to have that top step, it's just instead of having like, um, like trophy lines, rubber knob on the top, 
you know, that's a great idea that, that works, but I just find it, you can slip. So mm-hmm. my thing about platform is I, if I'm going to use a platform, I'm going to be locked into that tree. I do not have room for error to slip because we all know when a deer is coming in, you're at that tree. Like the hardest part about saddle hunting is which side of the tree am I going to shoot from? Is he coming this way? That way you're like a squirrel around the tree. You're like, but, and it could be detrimental if you went to this side and then he's on that side, you know? So your feet, like you, your, your feet and your body, your feet and your hips are the, what's controlling your entire body when you're saddle hunting, rotating your hips and your feet. So that's when you're just standing on, say, a square box on a platform, you have a lot less mobility and structure, I guess, stability to go around the tree. Yeah, but I, the reason I was asking about the depth is, like, not because of what I'm – the when I'm standing up there. Like, I, I I like the maneuverability. Like, I, I'm a leaner. Like, I'm not, I'm not standing – at all. The only, like the only times that that top stick platform was an issue to me was like when I was hanging up my, when I was setting my tether and when I was hanging up my backpack and setting my bow hook, because I had to pull my lineman all the way up to the tree so that I couldn't lean back um, yeah. because there wasn't enough room. And the reason is for me is, is one more thing to set up. And with those larger platforms, or the ones that are deeper, and that, like I said, this one isn't isn't as deep as a, a what I would call like a standard platform. Um, is it dealing with it inside of my lineman's belt? So you know you're you either got to be far enough back, and you're trying to set it up when you cam it over and everything, and holding onto the tree. And this is, you know, I'm going to get called like, oh, you know, just do it. It was like blah blah blah. I could do it in the dark with my eyes closed and stuff like that. Great. <laughs> you know how to solve that? <laughs> that? A lot of guys don't understand. Like you're saying, so when you're connected to the tree, you're about to pull your platform on your lines and belts right here, right? Mm-hmm. Loosen it up and let it drape down. So your your rope is going down. It's totally out of the way. People always have it in their mind that your lines and line has to be right here. Drop that baby way down. Yes, it'll hurt more when you fall, if you fall, because you have that much more slack to hit the tree, but it's totally out of the way. Because the last thing you want to do is cam a platform over onto your rope or secure it and have the rope caught in it. Or So I just totally loosen up, drape it down out of the way. you know. Or you could go up higher, but it's a lot easier as you're climbing to keep your line low. Like, you know, almost down at your fives. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And so for me, like never having done, done that and then saying, okay, well, I'll just use the thing on my top stick. Oh, psh, this yeah. easiest thing ever right and so right what's that it works for you yeah why right yeah but then sw- switching to the the wingman it's it's a little bit deeper than this and you can stand up on it and so i was kind of having that same issue and it was on a stick so the one top stick problem that i have is inevitably there's a branch right there where i want to be and so now instead of having to move you know what, an eight inch post here. Now I've got 20 inches or 17 inches where I have to maneuver it. And that's all dependent on arguably the most important part of the system is like where I'm going to stand for the next four to 12 hours. Right. And so all the work that it took to get up there to 
in the tree. Now I'm like, well, it's it lands right on a knot, lands on a branch, everything's wrong. So now I got to completely reevaluate. So I see the value of a, of a platform. And so setting this one up at height, um, because it's not as deep, I didn't have as many issues like that. And I like the fact, I don't know if any of Matt's other ones have a folding standoff like this. I like that for, for carrying into the woods. I've been, uh, I've got it on a plateau pack and I've just been setting it on the top. Um, and that's one of the things within our Patreon group, we've been talking about like, where are you, how are you carrying your platform up the tree? You know, how, where are you, are you clipping it on? Are you, you know, what are you doing? But, you know, even with your sticks, like those standoffs are, you know, relatively sharp, you know, pointy out objects. So it's not always the best thing. So that's one of the things I really did like about this. And then we were talking about, it's not on the standoff itself, but actually on the platform, how it's radiused. So it, it bites and it doesn't have to be completely centered on the tree or like completely lined up to actually really get in there and get a good solid bite. So those are some things that I, I really like about it. Like the, this one seems like it could be one for me for, from a non-platform guy. Right. And that was my biggest thing is I'm going to sell a platform. that's going to be, <clears throat> it's going to be rock solid. Like it, I'll climb with my steps. Say I'm screaming up a tree. I'm not, as I'm climbing up and mobily hunting, going up and going to take them down. I'm not worried about getting those steps perfect as I'm climbing. Say I jump on them and you know, they may shift a little bit. I wasn't so concerned getting them perfect. It's whatever because they're not going anywhere. But the second I get to my platform configuration, those are gonna. I will take. I'll take more time on my platform making sure it's perfect than climbing. So you're not gonna kill a deer climbing a tree. You're gonna kill a deer sitting in the tree. So that's. I'll spend a lot of time making sure it's perfect. And that's the beauty about a little platform and steps. I'll jump up. Like I think I'm gonna be. My feet are gonna be that height. You jump up there. You look around. You're like, nope. I either gotta go down or up. So boom. You know, two steps. Boom. I gotta go up six inches. Boom, hop up. That looks good. You know, just the ability to move and make little micro adjustments is, can go a long way. So uh, I think it's perhaps the most overrated thing in mobile hunting, hunting, uh, but it is does have some merit, uh, I suppose. But what does this platform weigh? <laughs> just... For, for the guys that want to know. It's, uh, it's depending on, uh, it, it'll vary by a couple ounces, but it's 3.6 ounces. Okay. Because that's when you, you know, when you're talking about the, the XL platform thing. And I mean, again, uh, we, we talked about this before. Like I think trophy line and the way that they do things that their marketability is incredible. But like, you know, uh, Tethered had their platform. You had yours. And Matt had the Ridge Runner, and then there was another one uh, before. But uh, then Trophy Line came out with theirs, and rather than come out with one that was the same size as everybody else's, they came out with their mission platform, which is huge. And the thing's like, if it's not over five pounds, it's it's right there. And it's like, guys go, and they think that they're going to go saddle hunting, and it's going to be way lighter. and but they want this giant platform and then they got to figure out how to get up the tree now. And then 
as they go back in their mind and they got to carry all these ropes and these, all this, this things that maybe they do or don't need, um, you know, because of the industry or, you know, the saddle hunter forum or saddle hunter pages on Facebook say, these are all the things that you need and they're set up ways more than they were using with their climber. So it, it's like a, a double-edged sword. Like for me, it's all about the bulk. Like it's my right. climber is, I, I just moved one in my father-in-law's garage yesterday and it's this big. And with the cables coming off of it, I mean, it's three feet long and I'm just like, I don't care how much that weighs. That is right. so monstrous, but it, you know, so for the weight guys, you know, this is pretty much on par with a regular, a, a standard size platform, I say, yeah? Yeah. And it's like, you know, the, the joke is, I always make the joke, guys want to climb a tree with dental floss and toothpicks. Um, the super lightweight guys. But in my mentality is I, I'm focused on maneuverability, packability, and simplicity. I mean, I want a compact system that's not in the way. It's on my back whether I'm going into an area and scouting and may hunt or I'm just scouting, I have, I, you know, yeah, I can feel it. It's back there, but it's not getting in the way. And when I need it, boom, it's right there. There's a lot of spots at Hunlong River. I'm not walking. I'm crawling through all the pucker and the frag. And, you know, you're getting wet. You're getting muddy. You're smacking against shit. You're literally pushing through prickers that just, if you go the wrong way, it stops you like a wall. So if I had climbing sticks, there's no way in hell I'm getting through there. Um, that's where I, that was in the beginning of saddle hunting. I found this spot. I'm like, if you ain't getting a tree stand on a kayak into this spot, that's when saddle hunting made sense. But yeah, just to have a compact system that's out of the way and, you know, it just makes moving through the woods easier. Okay. Well, I mean, I think we kind of went through everything I wanted to talk about. I don't think it was a too bad of a conversation with, you know, guy with the reputation for being an asshole. So I think it's, <laughs> I think it's pretty good. Um, when the girls have the RBF resting bitch face, mm-hmm. the resting dick face, I guess. <laughs> so, um, so if guys want to check out the saddle or, you know, the platform, any of that stuff, um, are you going to any shows? Are you going to be anywhere between here and the season? And then beyond that, like, you know, where can they, check out the stuff or uh, reach out to you we'll be in ohio at the mobile hunter expo end of this month 29th to 31st after that we'll go to Huntstock, massachusetts be a good show um and then i think the next one after that will be first year of the show harrisburg that's the great american outdoor show um you can find anything on wildedgeink.com or any social media wild edge uh YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. So we're all over. And any questions you call our office phone is directed to my cell phone you're talking to me. We don't have a little old lady sitting here doing customer service. No, it's me. So. Well, awesome, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, dude. Yeah.